Okay, here we go. Episode 93. We've got Kevin Chief Zurich and Simon Tickman, the co-founders of The Core Entertainment, which is a new music artist management company that's making waves, making a lot of waves here with some really great acts, some really great signings. Nate Smith, Valley, the Canadian band Valley. We've got uh, Rachel Wiggins on the roster. We've got Bailey Zimmerman. We've got Stephen Lee Olsen. The, the company just signed Nickelback, actually, the, the rock band Nickelback. We, we talk all about it, how that came together. And uh, we talk about some of their strategies with NFTs. We talk about why Canada is a little overrated, or excuse me, a little underrated. Uh, Core's making a big play in Canada. There's a lot happening up there. Two really smart guys who, you know, they've got a lot of hustle and they're they're kind of making waves right now. I, I think that, um, you know, more and more the Core is starting to come up in conversations and, you, you know, they're becoming unavoidable. They're, especially their acts are just, you know, becoming unavoidable. They're, you know, Nate Smith just made his opera debut. They are, uh, you know, you, you, you cannot avoid this company, The Core. They are doing big things, and you might as well learn about them now if you don't know about them already or learn a little more about them. So here we go, episode 93, the co-founders of The Core Entertainment, Chief and Simon Tickman. Let's dive in. Hey, you should be recording your podcasts here at our studio. Where, in Nashville? No, this is in LA. We're in Beverly. Our office is here in Beverly Hills. I was. I'm gonna be in LA in a couple weeks. We could die in person. Oh, nice. You gotta let us know when you're here. Um. Well, let's see how the interview goes. We'll see if. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. You know, if if we want to meet up afterwards, it's TBD. Uh, wait. And Chief, where are you coming from? Well, I'm. We were both. I'm in Nashville right now. I'm in the Live Nation office here. We were both here for Nate's uh, Opry debut on Saturday, and then. Simon flew home last night. I fly home Wednesday, and then we come back next week uh, in Nashville. I want to talk about the Opry debut. Also, how's the new Live Nation office? Because I keep seeing it every time I go to Soho House. I see the Live Nation office with the big Live Nation sign. Is it beautiful inside? Like, what? What's it looking like? It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal, and it's not open yet. But in I think it's May one. The entire lobby is like a lounge, right? And they have a full bar and full barista in the lounge. Just so, like LA. That's kind of what the LA office yeah, like is. Like LA, but like. honestly, way bigger, brighter, more light. And then they, they're putting an outdoor stage right across underneath the uh, guitar sign. So they're going to have a band playing on the weekends. It's uh, The building's phenomenal. Every Second, time I go there, I feel like there's like a guy on a crane who's like painting yes. the guitar. Like, he's like taping off. He did the pick guard. Now he's like doing a different section. That the guitar is going to be fantastic when they finish it. It's going to be unbelievable. Um, But but Nate Smith made his Opry debut on Saturday. Great picture, by the way, on Instagram of you guys with Nate. And he's holding that license plate that they give. But I mean, that's got, that's awesome. That's got to be a feeling of like, hey, we're doing something right. Like the Opry recognizes one of our artists, right? Like that's got to be amazing when you have an artist play the Opry, right? I was, I was telling Simon too, like you kind of forget, you know, we all, you get stuck in this business where you're just go, 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 go. And, you know, you forget why you kind of do some things, you know, in this business. And for somebody like, like Nate, who's now his second go around trying to make it, um, you know, he flew in his parents, he flew in his family. Like all of a sudden you forget like, oh, these things still mean something to these artists. And like, 
it's emotional. You know, everyone was like, Nate was really emotional and it meant so much to him. And it really is like, Hey, we're, we're, we're on the right track. You know, like people are noticing you're getting great opportunities and, you know, he's such a good guy. Everyone wants to see him win. So yeah, it's fun to still have those, you know, the first time you win an award, the first time you do the red carpet, like all those moments where we've done it before, but when the artist hasn't, but you see what it still means, it's like, oh, that's why we do this, you know? So it was awesome. It was amazing. You know, it was beautiful to see. I always tell our artists, be in the moment, right? There's there's never going to be another first. And for Nate, it was, he was really in the moment from the morning that we saw him at Soundcheck. He was just like, he realized how big of a moment this was for him and for his career and where it's at. And then all of a sudden you slowly start seeing his family trickle in and you could see the the emotions welling up for the big guy. It was, it was nice to see. It was nice to see. I was really proud of him. The Opry is so strange because I feel like I've been to the Opry a million times. You know, you go backstage with artists and you always feel like the effect is going to wear off and you're like, Oh, I'm going to the Opry. Like, okay, great. And then I feel like every time you even walk into the room, even if you're in the main room or when you're backstage with an artist, like there are ghosts in that, in that house that just like you, you get hit with this feeling of how special it is. And so like, it sounds so corny, but when you're with an artist who's making their Opry debut, it's like, there's nothing corny about it at all. It's like, it's incredible, right? It's like an amazing thing. It's almost bigger than you think it's going to be, right? It's, like, it's it's weird how it has such an effect. No, and, and there's such few places, really, when you think about it in the world that have that effect. Like when people play the rhyme, and, you know, and they walk on stage and they're like, oh, damn. Like, who's all played here? You know what I mean? Like, and, you know, people like their dreams to play like Red Rocks, you know, or Madison Square Garden. Like, there's only a handful of places that really are like these iconic venues that they're really just venues until you walk into them, like you said. And then you're like, oh, this is just different. It's just different. Yeah, you feel something. Like, okay, we have a lot to talk about here with the core. And there's a lot going on. But first of all, very recent news. The core just signed Nickelback. This was just announced last week, I guess, or two weeks ago. Yes, Very yeah. exciting. Chief, you have a big history with Nickelback, of course. First of all, I'm kind of curious, Chief, because I feel like if anyone's going to have this answer here, I think it's going to be you. Why does Nickelback get such a bad rap? They're such a great band. I think the second song I ever downloaded on an iPod and bought on iTunes was Rockstar by Nickelback, and I had that whole album. I love Nickelback, and they're fucking massive, but they get a bad rap. Where does this come from? Why does the band get hit so much hate? Well, it's kind, it's kind of like it's truly the million dollar question because there's no point here. You can't because I've heard some stories about they were on like a label that was like a very heavy metal label. And yeah, they they were, but look, I I don't I think it was it really probably the best answer is like they became like one of the first bands that became like a meme band on social media. And once they became like that band and everyone could just jump on that bandwagon and be like, oh, I'm going to say it. It just kind of never went away. It just became such a, an easy target. And we did. And when you did that, you got all these responses. So people are like, oh, all I got to do is like talk shit about Nickelback. And someone's going to be like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And it just kind of never went away until now it feels like there's a big momentum shift they they haven't done much in five years this is going to be their first new album 
new tour, documentary coming out, which people are gonna um, love. And I think it's just like, it's like you said, at the end of the day, you can make jokes and laugh and do the memes, but they're a great band and they have great music. And I always laugh that, you know, you can't find a Nickelback fan on the planet, but they sell out stadiums and arenas worldwide and have, you know, 60 million records sold. And, you know, they just, they sell a boatload of merch every night, but yet nobody likes them, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's been interesting, but I think you're going to see that shift a little bit. I really do. Yeah, I think the timing, the timing yeah. is also perfect, right? The world is in a much different place than when Nickelback last released music or they had a big album because we're not... The bullying stuff, the social media bullying, it's it's quieted down, right? And and now you see it, we see it in some of our younger artists in like Bailey Zimmerman or Nate Smith, where they're like, I love Nickelback. There's so many influences in my music from Nickelback. And then you see Nickelback randomly being uh, trending on Twitter or on TikTok for young people discovering their music for the first time, being like, who is this? This is incredible. I think the perfect wave of where everything is in terms of our culture and anti-bullying and all that stuff. And people really like paying respect and homage to the ones that came before us. It's like the perfect timing for them to come out with this. I mean, I know I'm biased, but this album is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I'm not like a diehard Nickelback fan. I, when I first listened to it, I was like, this, these are just great, great, great songs. Is that narrative that like, you know, this anti-Nickelback narrative in a way, I feel like that could also create these super fans that that feel like they get something that nobody else understands right and i feel like there's something to that like in a way the, the fans who get it and who know how great the band is they don't give a shit they're just like this is our band and the world where it's us against the world right like isn't there something to that do you think like in a way it's there's it's something kind of, there it's kind of both like somebody somebody told us the other day they're like you know nobody likes like the negative you know press or whatever you want to call it but they're like but think about how many of those bands that were big when Nickelback were, were around and they're just gone. Like they are irrelevant as irrelevant can be because they never, for better or for worse, they never had anything to keep them in the limelight and keep them relevant. So they're like, to your point, Zach, for all the negativity that was there. It's kept it, them in the conversation. It kept them in the conversation, which in turn kept their fans, their fans. And their fans never went away. So it's kind of like one fed the other and it's kept them relevant and touring this whole time. So it's been interesting to kind of go back and go, man, like the guys would be like, yeah, sure. We got tired of it. It was kind of sick. Um, but if that completely went away, would we even be putting out a new record this year? You know what I mean? So you start to shift your mindset a little like, hey, for better or for worse, we're here and people love us and hate us but we're still here this album actually and now i'm really excited to hear so what so how does it come together i mean you obviously have a big relationship with them going back as their road manager i guess they were you know how like how did conversations come together to bring them into the core look it was it it was done the right way meaning like they had parted ways probably it was over a year ago with their previous manager who they had for 20 plus years he was their only manager and, you know, just one of those things where you just sit there and go, is it time for a change? Nothing bad happened. I talked to their ex-manager. They talked to him. Everyone's still friends. But it was just like, hey, is it just, you know, we just fallen into the same patterns for too long. 
So they had actually called us to say, just so you know, we're not putting your name in the hat to become the new manager because we're still very close. Um, I mean, we're like brothers and they're like, we, we don't really want to mix the friendship and business part. And I was like, totally fine. I respect that. And then they went through the process of a year of like trying to find a different manager. And through every meeting, they just kept coming back to like, we don't know these people. They don't really know us. They don't know our history. They don't know what we want to do. They don't know our personalities and they just couldn't land. And then it was literally like a month and a half ago, after a year, they called us and they said, look, we just keep coming back to you. You're somebody we know, we love, we trust, you have history and you guys have this great new young company, Simon, a bunch of great employees. We're looking for fresh team, fresh ideas. Let's get in a room. And we did. And we like, we hashed it out for like six hours and then went for dinner. And at the end of it, they're like, this is just, this is a no brainer, right? We just got to make this happen and let's go. So it's only been a month, but I'm telling you, it's very exciting. And, and what are you hashing out? Like when you have, when you're for six hours, you know, they're saying, Hey, we want to well, keep touring. We want to keep putting out records. Like, and you go, yes. And are you looking at other bands in similar positions and what they've done to keep their careers at the peak of what their careers have been? Like, like, like what, what do those conversations look well, like? Well, I think the, the first thing is I walk in is like the new fraternity, like pledge, right? Cause these yeah, guys is there are pressure to win the band over. Have, you gotta be the cool guy, Simon. No, no, I'm, I'm more interested. Listen, I'm, I'm interested in seeing the dynamic, right? They see chief, they see like their brother. So I'm like this new young guy who's like coming into the fraternity. And so I'm just trying to figure it out. And I said, I said to them, I said, I'm not here to change who Nick Nickelback is who they are, right? You guys are a band who could probably sign a tour deal tomorrow. You don't need management. But what you have in Chief and I is you have the built-in trust, right? You have a built-in trust with Chief. You've known Chief for 20 plus years. He's been there with you from day one. And then with me, you know, and when Chief and I started this company, it's just kind of a different view on the industry, right? We're thinking outside the box in deals we do with the record deals and NFT stuff. We are just trying to, and and I think it was interesting for them to see like, okay, we already know that we trust chief through and through. And then this new company thinks differently than kind of the dinosaur way of thinking in the music industry. And it was kind of like the perfect pitch without actually pitching them. And then when we're sitting there for six, eight hours, we're talking a lot about life. And then we're talking about how can we get Nickelback to be, to be like back in the ether of conversation? How can we get them to be discuss like for people to really realize once and for all like chad is an incredible songwriter like the band is incredible their live show is incredible what are we going to do outside of the music to bring them to 2022 and 2023 and make them relevant that's where the conversations are fun because they have such a built-in fan base and then i'm like i think that 20 year olds are going to love nickelback old Nickelback catalog catalog, and new Nickelback. And that's where the conversations become really fun in, in, in planning out, you know, our takeover. Yeah, and Zach, for us, it was interesting because they just haven't, you know, you live in your own world, right? So for us, we grabbed our team and we're like, look, we need you to go do a deep dive, right? Go on Nickelback socials, look at their numbers, look at their playlists, their, their downloads, their streams, their album sales, all this. 
And we went and built this all out. And all of a sudden, like our team is coming up to us going, guys, their numbers are incredible. Their engagement is insane. Like they have bigger numbers than Morgan Wallet on Spotify, right? They have- yeah, They do. They have like a crazy amount of, I think it was like 11 crazy. million monthly listeners. Insane, I was just looking right? at- yeah. yeah, 16 million followers on Facebook. And no one even talks about like, they have this, they have 25 million database of social media, right? And the band didn't even realize it. So all of a sudden you start looking at it and going, well, how do we tap into those 25 million people that, by the way, have never left? They've stayed thick, you know, through all the good and the bad, the thick and the thin. They're there just waiting for new music, new content. And then you guys have never been on TikTok, never really engaged socials. There's the NFT thing. Now, how do you release music? Because you don't really need a record deal because you're Nickelback, right? So we were, these were all the conversations like, how does the doc get released? What platform? Who gets it? How do you release music? And the other thing people really forget about this band is they're a global band, right? They, they have Mexico City and Japan and Australia and the UK and Germany. and They go everywhere. So all of a sudden, it's like, you got to take that, all of that into consideration. It's like, okay, how are we now attacking this globally as well? So that's where your conversations can get, you know, long with a, a lot of different ideas. And the truth is the bands never really utilized their brand because everyone thinks it's like tarnished and it's bad to say you're, you're in business with Nickelback. But now we started making these calls and everyone's got, we've, we've had nothing but your reactions. Like, I love Nickelback. What? There's a new record. What? They're going on tour. What? There's a doc. What do you guys need? How can we help? How can we get in business? I want to work. What do you, so now it's like, we're starting to see, okay, the fans aren't maybe as afraid to say like, no, no, I love that band. And I'm not afraid to say it. It's a badge of honor. Simon, coming from more of like a traditional business background as opposed to a music business background, like your first company was a digital sports marketing agency, Interactive Athletic. There's kind of a cliche when like business people come to the music industry and they go, oh, brilliant business minds don't get the music industry because it's totally upside down and it's totally not intuitive to what you know other types of businesses are. Is that something that you've struggled with or been frustrated with coming into this industry or has your outside knowledge, you know, been a, been a plus for it? No, I think it's been a plus because all of my companies and deals that I've done have always been really talent driven and talent facing from professional athletes to different musicians. So I was on that side. I was always dealing with talent just on a different level, right? More on higher level, macro level business deals and things like that. And then when I started kind of diving into the music side of it and from record deals to listening to demos to all the nitty gritty stuff music, I just loved it. And I loved because at the end of the day, I always say this, no matter what industry you're in, it's a people business, right? It's about how you get along with each other. It's about seeing when I invest in companies, I don't invest in the company. I invest in the CEO. I invest in people. So for me, when I got connected with Chief, it didn't matter that we had different paths to get to where we were. We cared about the same thing. We cared about the personalities, the people, the culture in place of who we're dealing with doing business with. And so for me, all our artists from day one, Chief and I said, we called it the core for a reason, right? We want to build a real family atmosphere. So that meant not just with our artists, that meant with our employees, our artists, families. Like when we drop, when we go to Nashville, 
Like we're having hangs with like 40 people, right? Because that's the culture. And so the business background to me is interesting because all it gives me was, I just feel like my biggest asset is like, I have a good judge of character, right? And so that's the same thing with artists. I care about if the artist is going to work hard and I can see it in them that they, I always say, you are the CEO of your business. We are management. We're here to help. But at the end of the day, we cannot be the ones working harder than you. We cannot, because then it'll never work. We will always be as hardworking as possible, but you have to outwork us all the time. And so that's the part I love. I love finding young talent that like is, is so hungry and thirsty to win, but they just need some help getting there. And so I think that that, that skill set, those tools, no matter what industry you're in, it, it applies everywhere, truly. And you guys were connected by your lawyer, right? So your lawyer, you both, I guess, have the same lawyer and he's, and maybe you guys are talking to him about wanting to do something different, or I, I don't know how this happens. And the lawyer says, you know, you guys should meet to start a management company, or he says, you guys should just meet and just know each other. Like, how do you guys get connected? It was love is like an episode of love is blind, but we got to like see each other. It was like, our lawyer was like, you guys just, first of all, you're going to really like each other and you see the world the same way. You have the same moral values and you care about the same things. And chief was in Nashville, but really trying to dip his toe outside in LA. And I'm in LA really trying to dip my toe deeper into the music world. And we just sat there and I always tell my wife, I love you the most. But when chief and I sat down, it was really like love at first sight. You know, like we just figured we knew right away. We became fast friends, brothers, and we knew we were going to start something really quickly. We just didn't know what it was going to be. And then quickly it unfolded into something like like this, where every day does not feel like work. Not one day has ever felt like work for Chief and I over here. And how does how do you guys get together with Live Nation? Because I remember when that press release came out that like Live Nation was going to invest in management companies. This came out a couple of years ago, I think, at this point. And then, you know, you guys, it feels like you guys were maybe one of the first companies to get involved with that program, I think. And there was a meeting with Michael Rapino, right? Like, how does, how did those conversations happen? Yeah, it was, so the previous company I was at, Live Nation was our partner on the management side, but that was through Maverick. So it was really right. like, we had partnered with Maverick, but Live Nation was funding Maverick. And so that, that was kind of like its own Thing for a minute and then when I met Simon it was right basically at the same time I was parting ways with my previous company so when I was doing that I was talking to Rapino and he's like hey if you want you can just stay here right just stay here and start your own your own management company because Michael was such a big fan of like managers he always says managers are going to be the most important people in our business moving forward because they're truly going to be the ones responsible for making most of the decisions. So he was like, you should just come here and start your own company. At the same time, Simon and I were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And I was like, you should come and sit down with Michael and just meet him. And I don't know, see if there's something for you within the Live Nation system. So we went and had lunch, not even thinking we were going to partner up. It was kind of like, I don't know where this is going to go. And we had like a three-hour lunch with Michael. And at the end of the lunch, he's like, so why are you two not just starting your own management company together? And we just kind of looked at each other and we're like, actually, we should. And it was kind of like that. That was really how it started. And he just said, just 
let's be partners and just go start signing acts. Let's go develop acts. He's like, without managers developing new acts, I don't have a future. I don't have acts to book down the road. So you guys go start signing and developing new acts and I'm here to help and support in any way. And that was like two and a half years ago. And it's been great. It's honestly gone better than we could have hoped. And then your first sign was Emily Wiseman, right? Do I have that right? Was that the first, yeah. the first artist? So how does that, because that's like a really interesting artist because she's someone who is known for being a songwriter primarily originally, but is such an incredible artist also. So there's a little bit of a narrative that has to shift and how, like, how do you win her trust or it's a new management company. You guys are very credible, but like, did you have to kind of win her over and say, trust us on this new venture? It's going to be big. Like, how do you get Emily Wiseman to be the first signing? No, it was interesting. It was, and I think it happens to a lot of people. When you're in a company and you kind of like, you know what you know, you know your world. So, you know, the company as in before, we were like, you know, we we're very tight knit and we are we kind of ran it all in a house. So I never really paid much attention to what was going on the outside. And then when I left and all of a sudden word was out like, hey, Chief's starting his own thing. It was, uh, I guess it just felt really good of people picking up the phone and calling me. Emily was somebody that her and I were always friends. I was always a big fan of before. Um, and we really just were friends first and foremost. But when the news kind of broke, her and I kind of connected immediately. And she's like, hey, so are you looking? And I'm like, yeah, are you looking? She's like, yes. And it just happened that quick where she was like, it, it, there's just a lot of people that were excited about the new venture and what we're doing. And we're happy to jump on board and be like, Hey, I know you guys are very talented and good, good at your job. I'd love to see where this can go. So that one actually happened very naturally and very easily. Emily's someone who I admire in a way because she's been very vocal on social media about how she's like, she's playing the game and she's doing the TikTok thing but she's very vocal about how she's like I'm an artist first I just want to create like why do we have to spend so much time making so much content on social media as her managers it's got to be a difficult thing to balance where she is such an amazing artist first above everything but you have to play the game in this you know yeah. era of the music industry like where there's got to be some internal struggle there of like balancing her creativity but playing the game that you have to play of putting content out on platforms like TikTok. Like how do you balance that with an artist where, you know, creativity and music is their primary thing? Of course. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough because Emily, we're sitting on hundreds of demos that like all of them could be singles. Truly. Like Emily is as talented of an artist and songwriter as there is in that town. And, you know, we always say like, there's no more verticals anymore in, in entertainment in the music industry it's all one vertical. Your music can be amazing, but if your social media game isn't strong, then nobody will hear your music. And unfortunately it works well sometimes and it backfires sometimes. There's a lot of people who hits, hit some sort of algorithm on TikTok, but can't sing a lick if you ask them to sing live for you, but they have crazy streams. And there's sometimes there's artists like Emily who are as talented as ever and it's more of a struggle to find her voice on social media, but she's so good at finding her voice uh, in her music. So it's that balance as management. You don't want to take ever away from the creativity, but you also say, and you got to work this social media muscle, just like you work your writing muscle. Like it's one of those things that are hand in hand in the music industry these days, where that's how 
not necessarily building an audience, but using the audience that you've gained. And that's how you test out new demos and, and, and see if, if people are into the songs. And it's one of those things that it's been, it's been harder for M to, to, to understand, but she knows. And I, I always say, so M, you're such a talented songwriter. Take that mentality and use it in your social media. Be yourself. That's all anybody wants to see. That's how you translate in that world. Just be who you are. And she's starting to catch more and more of a rhythm in it. But it's definitely harder with someone much more established like M than it is with like a 21-year-old kid like Bailey Zimmerman, who like is looking at his phone and ready to scream and shout on any TikTok. And I don't even we don't have to tell him anything because he's just doing it on his own. It's different conversations we're having. I think M actually puts out some good content on TikTok. Yeah, like she pops up on my feed every now and then. And I think it's pretty personal and it's very relatable. Yes. And I, I think it's pretty funny, actually. I think it's good. Yeah. Now she's so much better. She's so much better. But it's one of those things where, you know, you're, you you take out all your creativity and your rights during the day. And then all of a sudden you come home, you're like, wait, I have to go do uh, more creativity. And so I, I see the struggle. I, I I can understand it. But she's much better at it now. Yeah. So let's talk about like some NFT stuff for a minute, because you guys mentioned it. I know you guys are very involved in this. And a band like Nickelback, for example, like if you look at what certain bands are starting to do with creating their fan clubs and selling them as NFTs with all these perks, Avenger Sevenfold is doing amazing stuff with it right now. Um, is that kind of the line of thinking here is how do we create fan clubs using NFTs with higher perks or like what what stuff has got you guys really excited right now in like the Web3 space? I mean, look, I think it's so new, right? So people people are eager to write and talk about like the wins, right? Like everybody in NFT is making money and it's like, that's just not the case, right? 90% of these NFT drops are actually losing money or they're not working or whatever, right? Because people are still trying to figure out like what has value, what's going to have value. It's like collecting art, right? So everyone's like, they want to get in the space, but nobody truly knows where it's going to go because it's all trial and error. It's all experimenting. So we always say like the company that we created is it's truly an NFT marketing company. It's kind of like, we're not the platform that sells it and we're not the creators of the NFT, but we want to take the NFT that's been created, find the right platform, but then market it the right way. Because it, you know, if it's just a money grab, great, then it's a money grab. But if there's actually a purpose behind it, let's figure out what that is and make sure we're getting it to the right, to the right audience. So for us and a band like Nickelback, like you kind of got to dive under the hood. And it's like, so what do the Nickelback fans want? Do they want collectibles from Nickelback? Do they want rare items? Do they want a meet and greet that you can't get? Do they want special merch items? Do they want a piece of artwork? Like you kind of got to know like what that audience wants and then you can go, great. Now we're going to do it because the truth is, most people still don't know what NFTs are. And when you're like, okay, you can buy an NFT, but you got to go open a wallet and you got to go open an account to get a wallet to buy an NFT that's going to live in your wallet. And then if you want to sell or trade it, you got to go on a different site. And, and people are just like, whoa, I just want a Nickelback poster. You know what I mean? Like, so you kind of got like, there's a lot of education that is still going on in like, educating like the buyers what it is and there is an audience for it and it is growing there's no you know there's no question about it but for Nickelback it's like where does that live within you know their fan base and that's something we just got to have discussions about like 
what we want to give and what do their fans really need. It is kind of tricky though, because it is so early and because so many fans maybe aren't there yet with all the processes that you've described. Obviously there are ways that you can do it where you can pay with a credit card and use like Solana, right? But it's not quite the same experience. Is that something where it's like the cart before the horse, where it's like, we need to push ahead with this and be early and get it right. And the fans will catch up later. Or is it sort of meeting in the middle? Like, is it maybe too early for some artists to be launching NFT Web3 projects? Or like, what does the landscape look like? Do you want to be first I, doing it with, I, an, with an artist like Nickelback or with, with anyone? With an artist really? like Nickelback, you want to, you don't want to be first, right? Because like, I think that we want to be more calculated with it because their audience is skewered, is skewed older and maybe Web3 is something new for them. So I think we're still figuring that out with the with the kind of a new brand new younger artist. I think you can be more risky, right? There's less brand equity there and you can be more risky with it. But with Nickelback, we're really like as we're planning the release and the tour and all that stuff, all the marketing stuff, we're we're it's definitely a big aspect, but we're waiting to to kind of check certain boxes before we dive in. We're being more calculated about it. Like with a band like Valley, for example, it feels like there could be a lot more room for experimentation. Exactly. Like what kind of things could we be doing with Valley or maybe we're already doing in the NFT space. And there they have this younger fan base, very hip fan base. It feels like I feel like Valley fans might be buying NFTs or at least have a MetaMask wallet. Like what, what are we looking at with Valley to potentially get into? I mean, Valley, again, you always got to look at your market, right? So Valley is very young and that a very young audience. But that also means they don't have a lot of money, right? So valleys where it's like their fans want, they're more like the digital video game world. They don't want to buy artwork from Valley worth thousands of dollars, but they'll buy collectible tokens or collectible trading cards from Valley for $5, $10, 20 you know what I mean? So you just, and then you do mass quantity, right? And then within the mass quantity, you do the limited editions that become the collectibles and the rarities that people buy and sell and spend a little more money, but you can still get, you know, it's, it's like selling a merch store, right? It's like, here's all the options. You can get a $5 keychain or a $75 hoodie and here's everything in between. So you kind of got to like, you got to really open it up to the broader audience for a band like Valley where it becomes, it's more about fun. It's fun. It's cool. It's a talking point. It's a branding point. But it's not really going to like, it's not like you're going to make a million dollars in an NFT drop with Valley. But it's kind of like this weird box that feels like you have to check right now. Correct. It's just like, yeah, it's like a thing. Correct. With a band like Valley, like Chief, I know you were someone like when you were tour managing FGL, weren't you the person who was like, let's bring out Pyro or let's invest into the production of the show. With a band like Valley, who puts on a great show musically, like, you know, they just played the Basement East and it was an incredible show. Like, are there conversations you're having or both of you are having with the band about investing in production or now they're on this like sold out tour and it's like, how do we bring production or what do we bring out? Like, how how do you differentiate Valley, which is such a great band musically and very lovable as people? Like, what what can you do with them to sort of make them stand out with the production wise or show wise? Yeah, I think it could, like, first of all, it's like even with Simon's background, we always say like, you know, make the money you need to make to like, you know, pay your bills and make sure, you know, you're, you're, you're not living in the streets, but then you got to invest in yourself. Right. So I was always like, if you don't reinvest in yourself, how do you expect the record label 
and your fans to reinvest in you if you're not going to keep giving them more. So we've always ingrained that in our artists. And, and that comes all the way back to Nickelback. Nobody did better than that band where every dollar they made, they're like, great, we can add another pyro shot. Great, we can add four more lights. Great, we can get another truck full of gear. Like it was always like, how can we make the show bigger and better? So I think for longevity in a career, you have to keep growing, not only as an artist and a musician, but as a showman and a showmanship, you have to keep growing. So with the band like Valley, they are so creative. They're already there. For them, it's just like, we just need the budget, right? They want the light show of all light shows. They want the video show. Like they, they look up to a band like Coldplay and they're like, that band just puts on such a huge show and they pull out all the bells and whistles and it's lasers and it's the lighted wristbands and it's a lot of technology involved in their show. And that's where a band like Valley and us, we could see that band going, right? That's their kind of like North Star, as Simon always says, like they look at Coldplay and not like, not saying that's their favorite band musically, but just how they've like all, you know, they've taken that band and made us, they're an arena stadium act, you know, and they always seem to grow and develop and, and they put on a great show. So that is exactly out with Valley. You've is being Canadian a secret weapon for you? Because the core is doing a lot of business in Canada. You just hired someone recently to run the Canadian operation. I I'm feel like being by Canadian, Zach. All I don't I know what this is. I feel like being Canadian might give you like an extra affinity with Michael Rapino. Like there's a whole thing here. Like is Canadian being Canadian or having so much infrastructure in Canada, is that a secret weapon of the core? Well, you know, what's funny. What's interesting about Canada is, and I do think it's a secret because people don't look at it enough is like, first of all, it's right there, right? It is like, like I live two hours from the border in Vancouver. Like it takes me two and a half hours to get to Seattle. Right. So, but it is a big population with a lot of music fans and it is such a great place to go like build fans and like, like, FGL broke in Canada before they broke down here. Morgan Wallen broke in Canada before they broke down here. And there's a reason why like Keith Urban broke up there before down here. Like you've got this platform of passionate music fans who you can kind of go up there under the radar of the US eyes and you can go and like build this following and this crazy fan base, which then immediately translates down here because now it's DSPs. There's no borders with DSPs and your content. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, how this band get so big, right? And you look at a band like Valley, they've been around seven years, right? But people down in the States are like, I just discovered this brand new band, Valley, who they've been like growing and building and developing and crafting what they do kind of under the radar, right? And now everyone's like, damn, where'd this band come from? So I guess in some ways it is kind of a secret weapon that we can go up to Vancouver and go up to Toronto and kind of develop these acts. And then when they're ready, they're like, great, now we can really expose them to the U.S. market. Is that the difference? Like, I think if you look at a band like the Tragically Hip, that was so big in Canada, but never crossed over, it almost seems like that could be a worry of breaking bands in Canada that they might not cross over. Do you look at a band like that and go like today, if the, if the Tragically Hip were coming up, you know, they wouldn't have had, you know, they would have crossed over because of DSPs and because of streaming and playlisting. Like, is that why it's sort of, you're able to sort of pull that I, I, off? I think that's part of it. I think that like, yes, would have they had more success for sure. I think the one thing though, that like, if you look at the Canadian acts that have been able to do that, right? Your Shania, 
your Nickelback, your Bieber, your Drake, blah, blah, blah. It's, and, and I can say this because I'm Canadian, but they're, <laughs> they're truly not Canadian, meaning like they're able to create music that everybody could relate to. And it's not like, it's not about growing up in Alberta. You know what I mean? It's not about like, like tra Tragically Hip was an amazing Canadian band, but they wrote a lot of songs like about Canada and about growing up in Canada. And that was great. Lots of acts do that and have great success. But the acts that really break out is like when you can think bigger, right? And you can think globally and you can like, how can I create music that's not just influenced by where I grew up, but is influenced by the world. And that's, that's still, by the way, struggle with a lot of Canadian acts is there's some great talent. And I'm like, great, this will never work down on the States. It just won't. You're too, you're too localized. So it's kind of both. It's both about where you live and then but there is opportunities more than ever because of DSPs and social media that you can be from Canada and no one's going to care if you're making great music. Chief has a good radar. He has a good radar for Canadian artists that he thinks can transcend and who just are going to stick, stay in Canada. Chief, Chief's got a good radar for that kind of stuff. We always discuss it. Is this just a Canadian band or is this a global band? There's something oh. to that. Even country like, Canadian country versus Australian country versus country that comes out of the UK. It all has a very different sound. And there's yes. a sound to American country that is very American, very big. And it's funny because I get pitches all the time from country acts in Australia and the UK and, or, you know, even Canada and like very reputable people who are like, check this out. This is the best country song I've ever heard. I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't really feel like it's going to translate. There's something there. I don't know what that is, but there is a sound there that's pretty undescribable. That no, but but Zach, what did it, and look, it's kind of controversial in Canada, and it's you know, but I don't love it. Is look, if you want to be the best at everything, at anything in life, you want to go learn from the best, surround yourself with the best, and then you want to go compete with the best, right? So if I'm an artist up in Toronto and I want to be a country artist my first instinct should be like, I'm going to go to Nashville, right? I'm going to go learn how to be the best songwriter artist I can be. The problem is, you know, we have CanCon, right? And CanCon is, means that the Canadian government allocates a certain budget every year to give artists in Canada to create music. The problem, and this is where, like, to me, it's, it's where it limits the issue is, but you have to record in Canada, be Canadian, write your songs with Canadians. And then if you do all that, check all the boxes, your CanCon, you'll get played on radio because radio has to play 35% CanCon artists because they're trying to, to, to support Canadians, which is great. In theory, that's great, except the fact that you're limiting their abilities to go and actually become better because you're saying you're actually not allowed to go work outside of Canada. So therefore, your pool of writers is small, smaller, your producers are smaller, and it's got to be done in Canada. So that's a part to me where I'm like, why wouldn't you want, I'm like, give them the money, let, but why wouldn't you want them to go develop, become big stars, and then come back and go, great, they're still Canadian. It doesn't make them not Canadian, but, you know, it's been a highly debated topic for years now in Canada. This is big. This is a Canadian masterclass here, right on, on, on the show. We're both um, learning things, Zach. You and I are both learning things about the Canadian way of doing things. I'm, I'm all about. So 
the core entertainment, we've, we've got a couple minutes left, but how many people are with the company right now? We have, Chief, how many do we have? Seven? Yeah. Seven to seven people. And we're yeah. looking for a new, what, a new digital coordinator I saw on Instagram, right? Is that, is that <laughs> we're what? always looking for good people. It doesn't matter what the title is. We just want young, hungry. I don't know if we can say young anymore, but whatever. Just hungry <laughs> people. Hungry people who are ready to wear many different hats. And uh, we, we really do have such a good team. And I mean, you know, I mean, management is not a nine to five Monday to Friday. It is Monday through Sunday. And everybody that works for us is excited. They wake up every day and they're ready to go. And that's the culture that we're creating because Chief and I feel the same way. So, you know, see you got any good resumes, Zach, send them over our way. Okay. Good resumes for some good managers. And uh, uh, Chief, your favorite ACDC song is Have a Drink on Me? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Is that the best one? Look, but look, the, this is why I preface all this. Every song, everyone's favorite song comes with a memory, right? And when you hear that song, you're going, oh, I can only say that the best nights of touring with Nickelback and the best party nights on Chad's bus started with Have a Drink on Me. And I'll leave it at that. That's the that's the song. And Simon, have we ever thought about um, your, your father-in-law, obviously legendary producer? Could he come in and produce any artists on the core? Is that possible? I think he's having a good life. He, he's got a new kid. I, I think he wants to keep music in the past and just enjoy, you know, having his uh, new son and wife and all that. I don't think music is he's interested in all that anymore. He's not going to come in. Fair enough. What have we left out here? Have we left anything out about the core? Any artists we should talk about after midnight? New duo that I think people are really excited about. Anything? Any, after, anything else after, to talk about? Um, after Midtown. What did uh, I say? After Midtown. After Midtown. Yeah. Yes, after Midtown. Oh, new duo that everyone's very excited about. Yeah. No, look, we've got. I, I we're really excited about our roster because now it's like we've got from Nickelback, who's like now like you know legacy act to you know, the Bailey Zimmerman who's 21 years old and is like on this little rocket ship. So no, we're excited. We got Stephen Lee Olson who we're working right now up in Canada and then soon we'll be signed down here. Apparently a Canadian act who passed chief's detector as someone who could make it in America. He did. He did pass the Canadian detector. Um, yeah. And then we've got M and we've got Nate Smith who same thing. He's on a bit of a rocket ship. Valley. We've got a couple of developing acts that we're working on. Rachel Wiggins. Um, I mean, look, we're, we just like finding new young talent and just developing them and seeing where it goes. We love that. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of like Nate Smith, huge buzz right now in Nashville Valley, huge buzz just in the music industry. I feel like everyone, a lot of tastemakers are super excited about Valley. It, you know, a lot of hip bands really cool bands and artists on the core's roster so the core entertainment simon and chief have we left anything out here has anything been unsaid or have we gotten a good snapshot here of, of what's happening I would, say, I would say this zach you are very good at your job you knew everything i i you're a real professional truly i was very impressed very impressed chief and simon tickman on the podcast the core entertainment if you don't know some of the acts that we were talking about, check them out because they've got a great roster, really great roster of acts making some really great music. And they've got some superstars on the roster. They've got some soon-to-be superstars. Check them out. 
And uh, the Zach Tune Show is mixed by Sam Heyman. Our theme music is by Justin Johnson. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be back soon. We got new episodes dropping every week. And uh, we'll see you next time.